There is no objective marker for autism. Just as if you go to your doctor for concerns over cardiovascular health, they're looking for particular indicators that may flag this. They're not going to base that subjectively necessarily on how you look that day or, or, or how you respond to questions. They're going to look at your blood, look at your heart rate, look at various other measures. When we think of autism as just a behavioral or mental health disorder, that's that first mistake, I think, is we need to think about it as a biological condition. That's Dr. Georgina Lynch, an assistant professor at Washington State University. She's worked for 12 years as a speech pathologist in public schools, specializing in students with autism. Her clinical experience led her to wonder why autism testing focuses only on subjective markers like behavior, speech, and socialness. She's recently co-founded a company called Aperture Biotechnologies to develop an easy-to-use and objective test for autism. That's coming up on this episode of GeekWire's Health Tech Podcast. I'm journalist Meredith Hogan. Stay with us as we explore the latest in autism diagnosis. GeekWire's Health Tech Podcast is sponsored by Primera Blue Cross, providing comprehensive health benefits and tailored services to approximately 2 million people from individuals to Fortune 100 companies. Learn more about how Primera is innovating in healthcare at primera.com slash innovation. Before we dive into Dr. Georgina Lynch's work to develop an objective test for autism, let's get a little bit more background about how autism is diagnosed from a parent who's experienced it firsthand. My name is Gina Fast, and my twin boys that are 10 years old have autism. Will you tell me what it was like when your sons were little and you started suspecting that something was wrong? The first symptom was that they could not um, latch onto my breast. They couldn't breastfeed. And then the other symptom I started seeing was they were traumatized by water, by baths. And then another symptom is they couldn't stay still. I would see people with their babies, um, holding the babies in the pack, you know, walking around. The babies seemed comforted. My babies couldn't handle that. And of course, um, when it was time to talk, that didn't happen. How were those struggles perceived by other people? I got a lot of criticism that, that my children's issues were a lack of discipline. It was obvious to me as a mother, these were my everyday, every moment struggles with them, but it wasn't obvious to the doctors. I had to go to my pediatrician and say, I want to get my child tested for autism. It honestly should have been the other way around. What was the diagnosis process like? What kinds of factors were they looking at? You'll hear things like, well, I think I'm going to do these testings on them and another psychologist will be, I think I'm going to do these set of testing. So it's like very subjective and dependent on the person doing the testing. This is the challenge that Dr. Georgina Lynch is taking on at Washington State University in Spokane, Washington. What is it like for a parent to try to figure out what's going on with their kid? There are myths that we can talk about in terms of not every child with autism fits every stereotype that you hear about autism. There are a lot of kids who are uh, missed because of that and diagnosed much later, around age seven or eight. So 
often what happens, and I hear this a lot, is the stress between the parents themselves. One parent believes the child has autism. One says, don't worry about it. And it creates um, this journey that often can last years. Despite the fact that it's been standardized, it still requires interpretation on the part of the person interpreting the parent's answers to the question. So it does come back to the subjectivity. What percentage of kids are being missed? Recently, a study came out following a cohort of over 20,000 children uh, through uh, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So this study followed this cohort of 20,000 children from the time of screening, um, early, 18 or 24 months, up through age 8. And in that cohort, it was shown that only 38% of the kids were correctly identified. Moreover, if you were from a underserved area or low socioeconomic status group or minority group, it was about 14%. Give our listeners an idea of how big this population is. So if we think about the most current prevalence rates, we're at 1 in 59 one in 58, most would say. And when we look at that number, we're looking at one and a half percent of the population of children. The math works out to be more than 1.2 million kids. That's a significant number when you think about it, not only in the United States, but we think about it globally as a health concern. Dr. Lynch explored finding this elusive objective marker for autism as a doctoral student and now as a researcher. She was inspired by something she had noticed during her clinical time with autistic kids. Something was different about their eyes. The concept that we're looking at this pupillary light reflex as a potential area to measure really comes from the kids that I worked with who showed photosensitivity, uh, challenge with bright lights, and we know this about kids with autism. However, the interesting thing that I began to notice is under the brightest of light in therapy rooms, for example, their pupils were almost the size of their iris. They stayed wide-eyed. And so there's something fundamentally different in how their body is responding to those environmental triggers or cues. This is called pupillary light reflex. What problem are you trying to solve? So the problem that we're trying to address right now is early detection of ASD in the context of a well child check exam by medical providers as a first line screening. And in attempting to address the problem of streamlining that process and making it more objective, our goal is cr to create a device that would allow a healthcare provider to measure the pupillary light reflex as one indicator of overall brain development. Currently, um, healthcare providers, and we see this all the time, will shine a light in the eye and uh, conduct what we call the swinging flashlight test, where they take a manual pen light and they're assessing the integrity of, of the brain system or those cranial nerves, as I mentioned. And yet you will find that they record nothing objectively. They make a subjective assessment um, of how the pupils respond. The problem we're trying to solve is creating a device that's easy to use um, that can now transfer objective information on the part of the healthcare provider into the medical record that can be tracked over time. 
Georgina believes testing pupil reaction in kids is the elusive objective test everyone's been looking for. But how could she translate her research into something useful for pediatricians? That's coming up next on GeekWire's Health Tech Podcast. This season of the GeekWire Health Tech Podcast is presented by Primera Blue Cross. At Primera, we talk about what we do all day. We offer access to healthcare. The card in the pocket allows people to go get access to healthcare. Dr. John Espinola is Executive Vice President of Healthcare Services for Primera Blue Cross. The challenge we have is that we know that the healthcare that they get access to doesn't work as well as it could. So we have a duty at Primera to make healthcare work better. That's our job. We give people access to healthcare, yet we give them access to something that's subpar. We have a moral and fiduciary obligation to do better. We're going to do it in partnership with those who may touch the moment of care. Providers, innovators, entrepreneurs, all of these are going to help us move in the direction we need to to make healthcare work better. We're bold enough to take the risk to try to do something that'll make a difference and learn from it and be better along the way. To find out more, visit Primera.com innovation. Dr. Georgina Lynch had come up with a novel approach for autism testing, looking at the pupil reaction in kids. But that was just the first step. She approached the Harold Frank Institute's entrepreneurship program at WSU on the main campus in Pullman, Washington. I'm what they call a reluctant entrepreneur, right? So I um, see something in the science that has potential to help a whole lot of people. And the traditional course of science would say, well, we keep plugging along, we keep publishing papers, uh, submit the grants to try to demonstrate the model. And we're in a new age of science in which uh, translational medicine often can occur where uh, the act of engaging in supporting society in a real hands-on way uh, can be delivered faster through the private sector, and not only through the private sector, but we engage the private sector in the development of the science. It can become a reciprocal relationship. A biotechnology and entrepreneurship student named Lars Neuenschwander took on Georgina's product development as his senior project. He's now co-founder of Aperture. We originally were considering a mobile phone app uh, as our initial idea when we were working through the development process that we could take advantage of a lot of what the mobile platform had to offer. After all, it does have a camera on it, right? That's true. Yeah, everybody has a phone these days. And um, that was kind of the rationale. It's one of the principal arguments is that we have this you know, mini computer in our pocket and we might as well take advantage of it. Uh, we have since shifted away from that. And why not a phone? What were some of the barriers to using mobile technology? Are we going to, you know make all providers use the same phone? Uh, How is that phone going to age over time? Other issues that come into this are um, the calibration to the eye and how we capture this with various types of cameras on various types of cell phones, which may then interface differently with the app that is developed. Um, We also ran into issues around thinking about how we envision this translating into the electronic medical record. And as we all know, HIPAA can be a challenge. Also, it kind of came down to, could we see a provider, you know, pulling out their mobile phone in the middle of a, you know, clinical visit with a parents and saying, okay, I have this app, you know, and I'm going to use it uh, to help screen your child for autism spectrum disorder. And it seemed a hard vision to, to put together, so to speak. 
we know there is a lot of app development going on right now, but the long game is we want to see something that will become a standard in medical practice. Tell me a little bit about the device. I know it's proprietary information at this point, but if you can describe a little bit about what the experience is like for the doctor and for the child that they'd be doing the test on. Prototyping at this point in time is, I would like to say, the garage approach to prototyping in the typical entrepreneurial spirit, I suppose. A lot of what we've been doing has been um, based out of living environments, working with 3D printers, developing the hardware to then, you know, develop the prototype initially. And so we're designing a device that's a handheld device to be used in a pediatric clinic. Um, It's meant to be something that can be quickly grasped, roughly the, I would say, a little bit smaller than the size of a football. In my protocol, we often will say, oh, I'm going to show you my eye camera. You get to see my eye camera. And I let them touch it and let them see it. And that takes just a few seconds to do. And most kids are kind of intrigued by it because they see an eyeball on that screen and it just kind of stops them for a moment. So a child looks into the device. The device shines a light in the child's eye. We take four pictures, two per eye, and we're done. So we're not having to go to a special facility or even a special room. This is no different than a doctor grabbing for a stethoscope or some other device in their office. Exactly. You are simultaneously developing software and hardware. Which is the harder problem to solve? So I think it's like apples and oranges is how I would describe it. I don't think you can necessarily compare them in that they're both necessary elements that require different skill sets. Um, So when it comes to developing the software, we're talking not only about how we do data capture, but also how we analyze the data. And that represents a whole pool of problems in itself to be solved. And then when we talk about the hardware, we talk about uh, you know, how feasible the tool would be within the clinical environment. How would somebody interact with it? How, what's the usability of the tool in terms of how it would integrate into a you know, normal well-child checkup? Tell me, what is the result of the pupillometry? Is it a graph? Is it a set of numbers? What does that look like? And how does a, somebody with autism differ from somebody without? Just as your body needs to regulate temperature, it's regulating the amount of light coming into the eye that's needed in order to adapt to that environmental change. For the child with autism, we don't see that pretty curve. What we see is we see a little bit of what we call a signal-to-noise ratio problem in that we see um, maybe a delayed curve. We also may see... um, lots of fluctuation within the measurement itself. So the pupil is trying to dynamically adjust, but doesn't really stay in a general gradual state. We also see, pretty confidently, we see a delay in the return to baseline. What is the process like for trying to get FDA approval? You know, medical devices have to all be cleared by the FDA, you know, before their use. And, you know, the degree of risk is what determines the classification. And as long as we remain as a screening device, um, we're predicting that we'll be classified as an FDA class one. It's always hard to predict how your technology will, you know, be seen by the FDA. At least that's what we've been informed by people who have previously gone through it, that process of FDA approval. 
we're expecting that typically between six to nine months is what usually is required for FDA approval for a class one device from what we've seen on um, you know, published information. What's the competition like in this space? The emerging startups we see in terms of ASD screening are kind of patient-facing. A good example is a company called Cognoa. They're using kind of an AI uh, platform as well as a modified, you know, behavioral checklist. At least that's a portion of their how they're pursuing the problem to screen for autism through an application on the cell phone. And so it's a very different approach to the way we're looking at the ASD screening process. Uh, they, I think a key limitation is that their tool is still being based on behavioral screeners, still behavioral questions, uh, whereas the idea behind our tool is entirely physiological. How much money is it going to take to get to market with this device and its software? To, to make it to market, uh, we're hoping to do it all through commercialization grants. And those commercialization grants would amount to somewhere in the $1.5 million range. And that will cover a wide variety of things in terms of the development process where, you know, things regarding product development as well as all the research and feasibility testing and, you know, clinical trials that would be necessary to validate the data uh, and for use in the tool. We're in Spokane, Washington, which is about a five-hour drive away from Seattle, which is obviously the better-known technology hub. Do you ever wish you were doing this in San Francisco or in Seattle? What are the pros and cons? Obviously, the things you'd benefit from in major cities and if you were to go to the Silicon Valley is you would have the opportunity to take advantage of a lot of the talent that's down there in terms of, you know, people who could help you build out your product. And there are definitely limitations to going to those places as well. Uh, You know, because there's so much uh, entrepreneurial endeavors happening in these major places, it can sometimes make it challenging for new startups to form there because, you know, you think about things like real estate price and the ability to actually live in the place that you're working. And so I think it's kind of the lesser known places in terms of the entrepreneurship that can actually be the niche zones to create your your company because they offer great opportunity uh, and resources at a diminished cost to you. You had mentioned a poignant story from, I think, your own family mm-hmm. where um, this misdiagnosis had a pretty significant impact. Definitely. This, this is uh, personal for me in terms of not how I found myself working with autism, but how autism touched my life, just as it has so many others. I have a niece who is now uh, about 24 years old, and early on she had some developmental needs. Um, She was speaking just fine. She had verbal speech and was really pretty social, pretty outgoing child. She had trouble holding crayons. She had trouble coloring. She had trouble... um, staying with the routines that were happening. By the time she was six, they diagnosed her with ADHD and put her on an ADHD medication, which is really a stimulant. Um, It's meant to help with attention, but instead for her, it had a number of side effects. She lost a significant amount of weight. And it wasn't until she was 16 or 17 that she was finally diagnosed with, at that time, was Asperger's syndrome, high-functioning autism. And so she missed 
interventions that might have been provided in a very different way as a result. When you ask her about her experience in school, that was the worst time of her life. Aperture is on a three-year timetable to bring their device and related software to market. Does this replace all other forms of screening for autism? The plan is to not have it replace other forms of screening for autism. The plan is to have this serve as another piece of information for a pediatrician to use in their assessment of uh, the developmental timeline of a child. The big problem we're trying to solve is late diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. Currently within the U.S., the average age is, of diagnosis is four and a half years old. That's about two and a half years too late. Getting diagnosed is a whole different story to getting diagnosed at the right age. Um, we know that the average age of diagnosis for children with autism spectrum disorder is around four and a half years old. Um, and the reason why that's important is because the earlier you can get a child diagnosed, the better off they'll likely be for the rest of their life because they can get early intervention, change a lot at an early stage when their brain is very plastic to allow them to lead much more meaningful uh, lives. And so because we're diagnosing so late, right around four and a half years old, where the cutoff for early intervention success is around five years as the neuroplasticity of the brain decreases, we're really missing an opportunity with so many kids to allow them to get access to that intervention. That was Lars Neuenschwander and Georgina Lynch of Aperture Biotechnologies, as well as Gina Fast, the mother of two autistic boys. To see a video of the test Aperture is developing and more info, see the show notes on this podcast. You can also find more episodes at geekwire.com slash health tech. Thanks to the sponsor of GeekWire's Health Tech Podcast, Primera Blue Cross. You can find out more about their work at primera.com slash innovation. I'm Meredith Hogan, reporting for GeekWire. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode of the GeekWire Health Tech Podcast.